This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast, where we cut through the complexities of the commercial real estate industry. In this episode, we're joined by real estate virtuoso Ron Dickerman, president and founder of Madison International Realty. With a track record of raising over $8 billion for global real estate investments and 35 years of experience in transforming underperforming assets, Ron is an authority on direct secondary markets and of capital formation and risk management. Get ready to gain unparalleled insights from a leader who has not only shaped his firm, but the industry at large, as we dive into the evolving landscape of real estate private equity. Welcome to the podcast, Ron. Ron, good afternoon. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me today. Wonderful. Uh, where do we find you today? I know you were globetrotting there for a quick minute. I'm curious, are you back in the office and how, how are things going? Yeah, back in New York City, uh, headquarters of Madison International. It's been a busy, actually, six to eight weeks. I think I've circumnavigated the globe at least twice. Uh, my most recent four-way was I was in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for what they call Future Investment Initiatives. Fascinating conference and um, ha happy to share some of the highlights. Wonderful. Yeah, and we'll go into some of that um, because it is it is an interesting time also, uh, but an interesting time for the industry as well. So I am... I am curious how the commercial real estate space is being considered throughout the world. Um, before we do get into that little area, um, Ron, I would love to hear a little bit about you, you know, your path to your role um, at the company and sort of, you know, how you got to where you are today. I'd be happy to share with you. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to mentor young people who were my, my former self, so I'd love to tell my story. Um, mine is kind of a circuitous route, uh, kind of the old stereotype of not knowing exactly where life is going to lead you and having a few doors open that I had the foresight to, um, to walk through and the rest, as they say, is history. So I'm actually a Bostonian uh, by birth. I, I, I spent my childhood growing up in the Boston area, which I loved. I'm still a Boston sports fan and I still have some family there. And um, I also grew up in a what I'll call an old-fashioned real estate household, where my father was dabbling on the side in commercial real estate and bought a couple of two-family houses, and I used to go with him to cut the lawn and to fix up the um, uh, the kitchens and the bathrooms, and learned a lot about kind of the ground-up process of creating value. And um, I went to Tufts University, where I became a bit of an entrepreneur, and uh, I scraped together some savings, and I bought a 12-unit apartment building in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is actually where Tufts University is located, and um, had a really fun time as a student, also being an entrepreneur. And um, I actually taught a course my senior year at Tufts on real estate investing and started to raise some money from investors. And my um, career started to blossom a bit. And I thought at the time, you know what, I really want to go to business school. So maybe I better put um, this entrepreneurial venture on ice. And I threw in an application to Columbia Business School much to my surprise, I was accepted and I ended up moving to the big city. And that was one of the twists or one of the doors that opened. And, and frankly, I've never looked back. So um, I had a great couple of years at Columbia and then thought I'd go back to Boston and continue on this entrepreneurial um, uh, stint. And instead, I threw in a couple of um, uh, resumes to a few investment banking training programs. And again, to my surprise, I got a job offer at a firm called Smith Barney, now part of Citigroup, doesn't exist anymore. 
And um, I accepted the offer, maybe a little bit naive. I thought I was going to work in real estate investment banking. And um, I showed up on my first day at the job and they said, no, 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 you're not going to be an investment banker. We're going to put you into a special department that we call real estate direct investments. And what you're going to do is originate real estate limited partnerships. You're going to buy real estate assets, package them into limited partnerships and sell the LP interest to high net worth investors of the firm. Now, I'm a little older than you, but this was a big business on Wall Street back in the 1980s. It was after the Reagan Tax Reform Act of 1986, and there was billions of dollars being raised. And I learned a lot about how to package real estate, how to market the interests, how to manage uh, the investor expectations. And I did that for about five years. And um, that took me all the way through the first Persian Gulf War, the George Herbert Walker Bush Persian Gulf War. And um, there was a recession. There was a savings and loan crisis. This was back a long time. And my group at Smith Barney disbanded. I effectively went out into the world to seek my fortune. And um, there were new firms being created at the time, Carlisle, Blackstone, Starwood. I didn't know what quite to make of them. I knew they were getting big pretty quick. And I was figuring out a way that I could become a real estate entrepreneur. So the sort of the, um, I, I would say the end of the beginning of my story is that I started a firm called Madison. We were on Madison Avenue in New York at the time. And the idea was to buy back these limited partnership interests that had been bought aggressively by doctors, dentists, and yeah. lawyers. At the time, they were thinking about liquidity for those interests. What was becoming interesting and sexy was dot coms and Microsoft and Cisco and, you know, online. And people thought that real estate had become a bit of a dinosaur. So the timing was quite perfect. And what I effectively did was create a liquidity mechanism to allow owners of limited partnership interests to sell those interests back to my company and um um and the business plan worked out actually very very well um and um that was sort of the beginning uh sort of proof of concept of what has now become madison international realty excellent yeah and so tell us where is the company today what 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 do you do and how uh much broader is the scope of your operations We've gotten a little broader. So twists and turns, lots of lessons learned along the way, a couple of decades. So Madison is now entering its 20 is, you know, its 21st year. Um, we're about eight to nine billion dollars of equity that we manage for investors around the world, about 30 billion of GAV. We have offices in New York, Los Angeles, London, Frankfurt. I'm delighted to announce we're opening an office in Singapore. And uh, we invest in uh, three major geographies of uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and Europe. And it's our hope that with the opening of our Singapore office, that we'll begin to invest also in Asia. So we have a fabulous group of people in our platform. We look around the corners. Um, we try to look around the, the world to figure out sort of where the real estate markets are moving. And I think we've done a very nice job of creating a differentiated investment experience for our global roster of institutional investors. And in terms of different food groups within the industry, um, how do you guys, uh, where, where do you allocate your funds? What's amazing is that we've moved our priorities, you know, with um, movements in real estate asset classes, technology, how human beings 
have adapted their behavioral patterns. You know, I, 10 to 15 years ago, people were investing in office buildings and shopping malls and apartment buildings and industrial was kind of a nascent asset class. Now with the onset of COVID and with the way the world is moving with the combination of technology and real estate, artificial intelligence, all the things you know, um, we've been using data to inform our investment decision-making. So that started well before COVID. And one of the things it told us was to start de-emphasizing the office building and the shopping mall based on way human beings were behaving and emphasize things like housing strategies, you know, industrial um, sectors, class A, class B. We're also very focused on cold storage. We've been investing in um, uh, life science, data centers, and other alternative real estate asset classes. And in my 35 years or so investing in real estate, I can't remember a time where real estate asset classes are so differentiated. And alpha you know, can be achieved by sector selection. So, um, you know, just during COVID alone, I'm sure you've recognized, your, you know, your own pattern in terms of how you live, work, play. And that's happened to an even greater extent post-COVID, hybrid working, how people have, have decided to spend their time. And we think the other game changer that's coming down the pipe rapidly is artificial intelligence. Yeah, 100%. I'm curious, you mentioned, uh, you know, data is sort of the foundation of your decision making. Um, you made some earlier, uh, you said decisions in terms of office and kind of de-emphasizing that. Uh, where, what were you guys beginning to see uh, in, in the numbers and, and how early that maybe this was a sector that, you know, didn't warrant as much attention as it did previously? I would say what we were most concerned about was late cycle investment metrics that office buildings are extremely capital intensive. They do well, you know, in sort of the middle to the end of an economic cycle where occupancies are high, um, um, you know, cap rates are low, financing costs are low. And uh, we began becoming a little bit worried about, you know, per square foot valuations and the idea that trees don't grow to the sky. Um, we're also concerned about the large inventory of what I'll call class B buildings and the fact that the industry was bifurcating itself into you know, ultra modern class A that tenants really wanted to occupy and would pay premiums. On the other hand, there's quite a large amount of class B inventory that just didn't seem to be getting the same take up demand and level, level of rental growth. And I would say, you know, late cycle, cap rate compression, you know, I sort of grew up in an environment where, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent cap rates were normal. Um, I'll come back to this, but I still remember, you know, the 1970s and early 80s with Ronald Reagan and Paul Volcker when interest rates were literally 16 percent. So, um, you know, I think we began to be a little bit more conservative, operating a bit more in a risk off environment, taking our foot off the gas pedal. And, um, you know, for example, we have not bought an office building in five years. We haven't made a retail investment in five years. And when I think about what we've done, we've been investing in, like I'm advocating, tech-enabled, growth-oriented real estate asset classes. And that's really where we think the world is going today. Um Given sort of where where the world is, and um, you know our focus, as you know, Ron, is uh, you know primarily on the on the West Coast. So I'll I'll anchor my you know question a little bit around Northern California and San Francisco specifically, where you know the vacancies. I think in some of the cities there, like you know Seattle and Portland, and you know San Francisco, and you know even in LA, have have really spiked. 
Um, does that start to change the equation in terms of interest for the office property uh, as an investor? We don't think the equilibrium has yet been reached. So you're, you're sort of asking the question, you know, with these fundamentals, with fact that things have been taking a step back, does that represent a buying opportunity? And I get so many questions about why don't we just go buy a 50% vacant office building in Seattle? Let's fix up the lobby and the elevators. Let's try to stimulate leasing. That must be a positive investment opportunity. And I think our view is equilibrium has not yet been reached, given the fact that the typical office lease is five, seven, 10 years. COVID was only two and a half years ago. So most major office users have not reconciled, you know, the equilibrium or their, you know, stated need for office space. They're still trying to assess their workforce and their interest in hybrid working or working from home. I do think there's a trend to getting back to the office. One of the ironies of my, you know, global travels is that one of the observations I've had is pretty much everywhere else in the world, workforce is back in the office, Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. It is not the case in the United States. Maybe it's a function of the millennials. Maybe it's a function of the, you know, the lifestyle that they seek, seek to live. But I'm not sure that the five-day work week is ever really going to be a thing broadly in, in the United States. We're back in the office. We're in the real estate business. We do own office buildings and we're also a team environment. We mentor people. We make decisions together sitting around the conference room table. And I think the general culture of our firm is if you want to be involved in the decision making, you need to be in the office. But that's not true of you know, law firms, accounting firms, programming firms, consulting firms, which have more of an ether and more of an acceptance of working from home. So we don't think it's time to jump back into investing in office buildings. Uh, Ron, I'll ask one tangential question on this. I, I don't want to spend too much time just, just on office, but I am curious, given that you do have investments around the world and have exposure through, um, you know, folks that you know and in other, other markets, I am curious. Um, I was born and raised in Europe. Most of the sort of, um, uh, you know, urban centers, I would say, in you know, Europe seem to congregate where most of the population lives also. Would, would you argue that the, you know, advent of sort of suburbs and the sort of spread out nature of sort of where we live and how we live also has an impact on, on that, meaning, you know, public transportation doesn't reach everybody and just these, you know, commutes of, you know, again, Northern California is one, one example where, you know, a commute of one and a half hours is not that unusual, right? Um, seems to be kind of a, a, you know, deterring factor in returning to the office also. Yeah. And I would say it's a little tricky just because you know what's happening to WeWork. You know, there are rumors are they may be filing for bankruptcy today or tomorrow. And what an amazing journey that's been from nothing to 46 billion of equity market cap back, you know, back to nothing. So, you know, the question is what actually happened there? And, you know, the suburban office building has not been, you know, um, a, a great investment over the last 10 years. And, you know, I have a sense that cities are still a thing. The Class A office building where prime office users want to locate is still going to be in demand. 
but I think the co-working facility, the suburban office building is becoming less in vogue. And in my opinion, why is WeWork going bankrupt? A, because other office users have created co-working facilities and maybe they've lost you know, some of their mojo. But two, I, I think the choice isn't that people want temporary office space. They're happy to work from home or they want to be in the office working with a broad team. So I, I think at, at the end of the day, um, yes, I think those commuting patterns and the distances away from the office buildings are going to become a factor. I think there's all kinds of future issues going on, autonomous self-driving vehicles, artificial intelligence, the acceptance of you know, video communications, you know, is, is shortening th those distances and not requiring those people to make those commutes every day. So if your employer would allow you to make that commute three times a week and not five times a week, you might accept, you know, a residential location like 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 what you mentioned, Vlad, being an hour and a half away from the office building. So I think these patterns are just establishing themselves now. And um, I'm I'm a car guy. I've been fascinated by, you know, the prospect of autonomous electric vehicles. But the truth is they haven't been coming as quickly as people would have foreseen. Um, you know, the you know, the Google pools that they're operating in San Francisco and Phoenix, I, I would have thought there would have been autonomous vehicles operating in city centers much more quickly than what we have seen. But, you know, as you know, the manufacturers are having a hard time selling electric cars. There's a lot of resistance to range anxiety and charging. And I think the autonomous technology has also proven to be much more complicated um, than what the manufacturers had thought. So, so some, sometimes with the best of intentions, these things take longer. Yeah. Um, given sort of what you've seen at the Future Investment Initiative uh, in, um, in you know, the Middle East that you just attended, uh, the United States, you know, typically was, you know, viewed as kind of a, you know, a safe haven for international investors. Um, the commercial real estate industry, I think, was maybe one of the, you know, pillars of that safety as well. Um, given what's happened in office, um, you know, across the board in, you know, U.S., do, do you still feel that that's the sentiment? I think the sentiment is still that the U.S. is the leading economy and the most compelling investment destination around the world. Um, I think the truth is, you know, the U.K. and Europe are lagging on monetary policy intervention, the fight against inflation. Certainly their population growth is not as robust and their economic growth is substandard. So, you know, the U.S. economy continues to confound most people. We had an amazing GNP number just about two weeks ago, four point something percent. Um, inflation number is positive. The Fed took a pause, you know, last week and the stock market, despite everything going on in the world, which is so troubling, the stock market is strong. It seems to be disconnected from geopolitics. So um, in all my travels, including where we were in Saudi last week, you know, Saudi is becoming a dominant player in the region, but there's no getting around the, the United States is the number one and the most preferred investment destination from what we've been uh, been seeing. Have you noticed international investors getting more sophisticated? So, you know, uh, getting out of, let's say, office, which was sort of, a, you know, an understood asset to now going into industrial life science, uh, you know, multifamily and, you know, th things like that as well. Very much so. Um, I think that's been the trade for several years now. They call it beds and sheds, like you look at looking for that trade. And uh, someone said something to me that was very insightful a few days ago, which, which I'll repeat. And that was over 
the last 10 or 15 years, the office building was viewed as the rock or the foundation of a diversified institutional real estate portfolio. It was the economic engine. It's where you went to earn a living. You know, it was, you know, perceived as being, you know, the ultimate sort of low risk asset. And now what I think the general consensus is, is the home is, is the rock. Every human being needs a roof over their heads. And at the end of the day, you know, housing strategies, whether it's multifamily, seniors housing, single family homes for rent, student housing is really becoming what I'll call the foundation of the institutional real estate portfolio. And even within that sector, things are shifting. Like we're finding the multifamily sector to be overbuilt. It's um, reacting to higher interest rates and supply chain issues, rents are starting, rental growth is starting to wane, uh, whereas it was an amazing trade over the last 10 years. And one of our best ideas is single family homes for rent. We actually think the United States is well undersupplied in single family homes based on some of the uh, factors that I mentioned. And the millennials, you know, are now the largest single you know, subsector of the US population, 30 to 35 years old. They finally decided to get married and start having children and they're looking to live in single family homes. Many of them are renters by necessity, not by choice, because they can't qualify for single family home loans or afford the down payment. So you've got almost a perfect investment thesis of constricted supply and rising demand. We think that makes for an excellent recipe for investment returns. So that, that is one of our best ideas that we're pursuing for our investment strategy. Yeah, would would you mind uh, telling us a little bit more 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 about that in terms of are you looking at certain geographies for that? Um, how is that space evolving? And I realize this is more than one question, so feel free to answer one at a time. But how is that also evolving from a developer point of view, where the developers used to you know buy tracts of land, build homes, and sell them one by one, but that's evolving as well, where they're now selling directly to investors, right? For as a as a sort of multifamily kind of product, if you will. Uh, that just you know sits somewhat you know differently on on the land, right? Right. Yeah, it's actually called called uh, build to rent or BTR. So it's exactly what you said, Vlad. That um, uh, real estate developers are buying you know parcels of land and they're building clusters of purpose built single family homes for rent. You know, in a campus setting with shared amenities like swimming pools and tennis courts. So it's what you would have seen in a in a typical you know garden style apartment community. Uh, we have not invested in that sector heretofore, we have been investing in what's called scattered homes, which is just buying a um, heterogeneous portfolio of mixed homes that are purchased for the purpose of renting, but they're in residential neighborhoods where the people to your left and your right actually own their own homes. They attend the same schools and there's really no differentiation that you happen to be a renter, whereas your neighbor next door is a homeowner. Um, we're finding that that, although they're more difficult to manage and to administer because of the geographic disparity, we think it's a better proposition for the renters themselves. They tend to be more embedded in the communities um, and they tend to have longer average tenant stays. 
So it's 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 just a preference. But um, we, we do think this is an emerging asset class. It was made famous by Blackstone and Invitation Homes you know, during the global right. financial crisis. But this is an industry that's now become ubiquitous. On the other hand, the institutional ownership of single family homes in this country is still a tiny percent of the overall industry. It's like four to five percent of the overall housing stock. So it has amazing room to run. And um, uh, you know, there were some negative vibes in Congress and in the government that institutions were buying up the American dream. That really isn't the case if, if you look at the underlying facts and statistics. Yeah. So I'm curious also about your perspective on, you know, life science, industrial. I think industrial has done really, really well and continues to do so. I think there are sub subsegments of industrial that are continuing to do really well. I think you mentioned cold storage is one of your areas of uh, focus, but I am curious sort of in general right. how industrial sort of looks to you and, and also life science. And I'm asking that because there is some effort to you know convert some industrial to life science projects i think that's not as easy always but it does sort of pop up every now and then um what where where do you guys you know how do you view those two sec sec sectors yeah um you know the rise of industrial the 700 million square feet of industrial space that's risen both in the united states and europe has been extraordinary it's been an extraordinary investment uh we've done it we've we've invested in uh, ventures in the United States, in Europe, we're in Class A, we're in Class B, we're in cold storage. Uh, we, we think those are some of our best ideas. Um, we do think that the Class A industrial market is overbuilt um, and that many of the big users like Amazon, um, you know, have publicly gone on record that they're pulling back in their space utilization needs and, and their growth. They got over their skis a bit during COVID where people were staying home. And uh, the fact of the matter is there's been more of an equilibrium developed in, in the supply chain. Uh, we do think class B industrial is sort of an underexposed and very attractive niche. Um, they tend to double as last mile distribution warehouses. They tend to be older, closer to the recipients of grocery. And because of the land prices in infill locations, there's larger barriers to entry. And then as, as, as you said, correctly, our best idea of them all is cold storage. We think that's a very underexposed and unique niche of the industrial business. You know, the cold storage um, and home delivery of grocery has taken a big step up during COVID. I know my, my own household, my, my, my wife in particular, used to insist on going to the grocery store to buy the raspberries. And now she clicks on an iPad and they're at our front door in three hours. And, it's, and the ice cream has to not be melted and the eggs have to be fresh. So you can think about how that puts pressure on the cold storage food chain, both the distributors and the end recipients. So we have a portfolio that's now the fourth largest portfolio of cold storage in the world. They're developing in the United States, Canada, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And uh, it's highly automated and technology enabled. Most of the pallet movements are done by computer and extremely efficient. And uh, we think it's the future. And, and again, one of these asset you know, segments that didn't really exist you know, many, many years ago, but you just have to key off of human beings and their you know, behavioral patterns. Yeah, and talk to us a little bit about life science and your your perspective. Yeah. Are you guys invested in that area as well? We are invested in life science. I would say that um, the industry has gotten a little overheated and is probably in the midst of a bit of a retrenchment. Um, you asked before about life science conversion, and that has been a thing. There was, you know, in in sort of the 
you know, um, I'd say a couple of years ago, you know, some people think life science is to the pandemic and COVID what cybersecurity was to 9-11. And uh, I would say that that's a reasonable analogy. And there's been too much money flowing into life science. And then the other big barometer is venture capital financing of life science startups, which has started to wane. So um, you know, the big life science markets in the United States are Boston, the Longwood Medical Area, Kendall Square and Cambridge near MIT, um, uh, South San Francisco, and then San Diego. I would say those are the biggest niches of life science activity. They happen to be where we are invested um, as it relates to the sector. So I, I do think it's taking a little bit of a breather. Um, I still think that there's a fair amount of demand. We have not chosen to go to conversion. We have gone to purpose-built class A life science facilities, true lab space. And you know, the general view is you can't work at home when you're in a life science company. You gotta go to the laboratory. And then the other part of it is, is because of the spec build out, they tend to be very high spec. Um, they tend to amortize those costs over long lease durations um, and pay premium rents to the underlying landlords. So there is a method to you know, to our madness about why we like life science. Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, I would say it's a asset class that is a niche um, that's taking a bit of a breather. Makes sense. Um, Ron, I wanna shift gears a little bit here and uh, talk about sort of the outlook for the industry. You know, here we are speaking at, you know, at the start of sort of Q4 of uh, 2023, I am curious, sort of looking back into into the year, um, has 2023, you know, shaped up to be how you expected it to be? Well, uh, it's a loaded question. I would say, <laughs> yes, it shaped up the way we expected, but it has been a rough ride. You know, it started in the middle of 2022 with the super unfortunate events around the Ukraine oil prices, monetary policy intervention, inflation, and it really predated that with the COVID snapback, you know, as it relates to vaccines and, you know, the uptick in demand with supply chain issues that constricted supply and spiked prices in virtually everything. So it's all coming home to roost. And I think I made reference to this earlier that we really haven't seen an inflation driven cycle in the real estate business since the 1970s and the early 80s. And that was a rough ride. So 2023 has been a, a very difficult year. You know, as I've traveled around the world and I've thought about our own portfolio metrics, we We've really been using our capital to focus on our existing portfolios, capital needs. Most investors have been sitting on the sidelines. We think there's as much as $100 billion of you know, private equity, dry powder in real estate sitting on the sidelines, basically waiting for cap rates to capitulate, for cap rates to mark to market. So back in the spring of 2022, it was three and a half cap rates, four, four and a quarter, four and a half. Now, I don't think there is such a thing as a three to a 4% cap rate. I think they start in the five, starting around five and a half. And the truth is it's driven value, you know, uh, de destruction and diminution on the part of commercial you know, real estate participants. It's been a difficult ride. Borrowing costs have virtually doubled, you know, from sort of the low to mid threes to four to as much as six to seven to eight percent. And lenders have gotten much more finicky in what they're willing to finance, period. 
So I, I do think 2024 will be brighter. Um, you know, I think people are aware that we're closer to the end of the economic, you know, Fed tightening cycle. Inflation has gone from 9% to 3%. And even Jerome Powell himself has said, interest rates are restrictive. We're not going to leave them where they are. We're not going to wait for inflation to get to 2%, which is his number. We're going to start lowering them before it gets to that place. So if you look at the at, at the two-year, or if you look at the, the yield curve, it's no longer inverted. And, and I think at the end of the day, there are some people who believe the Fed may be engineering a soft landing. You know, at the end of the day, the economy is solid. The job number was mediocre that we that came out came out last week. It may very well be that they're able to pull off a soft landing and that capital might start flowing again sometime next year. If that's true, and some of that hundred billion dollars that I mentioned sitting on the sidelines starts to flow, you could see real estate prices starting to increase and you could see cap rates starting to compress. So my base case is that could happen sometime next summer, sometime next fall. But you know what's going on in the world right now. It's gyrating. There's so many issues that could cause that projection to be wrong. And um, I think you have to take a very cautious view. Yeah. And, and, and Ron, you guys just raised a fund recently, right? Uh, tell us kind of how uh, that experience was and sort of in light of all of these things that you just mentioned, whether it's macroeconomic, you know, global geopolitical issues, how, you know, how did that, how did it go? Yeah. So several months ago, we announced the final closing of our Madison Fund 8. It closed up at about 1.7 billion of investor capital commitments, which was a, just a superb performance. We're so delighted and thrilled about the support of our you know, global roster of institutional investors. Um, on the other hand, it was hard. Um, it, it took many, many trips around the world, um, a lot of engagement with our underlying investors, uh, which is a process that we find quite healthy, but it does position ourselves in a good spot just as it relates to dry powder and trying to take advantage of some of these opportunities that we've been talking about. Um, so um, I think investors are differentiating between strategies um, and investment themes that seem to be well-timed and well-set, you know, for the current opportunity. I think they're more into um, value investing rather than vulture investing. I think they're trying to find things that are going to grow and are going to take advantage of the intersection of real estate and technology rather than buying the old economy and old assets that are sort of tired and broken and not really reflecting human beings and the way they intend to interact around physical real estate assets. So um, there's a lot of talk about credit. We happen to be in the secondaries business. Madison pursues a strategy that we call direct secondaries, which has been resonating with investors, um, which we're very thankful for. And the challenge that we have now is to make sure that our pipeline and our investment strategy is well synced with the business you know, that we have been in and that we represented to our investors that we would pursue. So we're laser focused on that. Yeah, Ron, do you mind giving us a little bit uh, of a primer on uh, on what what secondaries are? Sure. So secondaries are really a liquidity solution for existing investors that are looking for an early exit strategy from their commercial real estate holdings. So we buy existing joint venture, limited partnership, co-investment, uh, non-traded REIT, open-ended fund shares from investors that may be owning a piece of a real estate position. It could be a property, it could be a portfolio, it could be a product that's illiquid. 
where they've decided that they want to monetize the value of that interest and take that capital and do something else with it. So in times of volatility and, and geopolitical change, like we're in right now, secondaries often become topical and kind of the focus of investor interest. Being a liquidity solutions provider in an illiquid marketplace tends to be a good place to position yourself. And that's effectively the business of Madison. Yeah, so we're we've come full circle, I think, from our conversation initially here on. I think, based on how the company was uh, started as well, right? Um, so, with that in mind, um, I do want to shift gears a little bit towards you know um, advice to your younger self, maybe biggest lessons mm -hmm. learned that you know you often share with people that you know, are interested in entering this market or you know young people that you mentor. Well, thank you for asking the question. Um, the first thing is anyone that's chosen a potential career in the commercial real estate business, I say, bravo, you've made an amazing choice. It's one of the best businesses in the world. Um, it combines so many different disciplines. You have to be a master of so many different things from, you know, from design to architecture, to engineering, to construction, to financing, to marketing, to, you know, tenant uh, uh, interactions across asset classes and geographies. Real estate is the most ultimate local business, but it's also turned into a global asset class with money flowing everywhere. So I'm sitting here at my office. You probably can't see out my window, but I'm looking at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on 50th Street and Park Avenue in New York. That hotel is owned by Anbang Insurance, in which is located in Beijing. So the fact of the matter is it's being converted to condominiums. It's hopelessly delayed. It's over budget. But on the other hand, what's going on in Beijing is impacting that street corner directly across the street from where I'm sitting. So it's kind of a good analog to what's happening in the commercial real estate business. You have to be a global citizen. You have to understand capital flows, exchange rates, interest rates. Um, but what's most refreshing to me is that at the at the at the essence of it, real estate is a people business. And we adore the relationships that we've created in the marketplace, both in terms of our investors and with our investments. And um, I think as I've been commenting you know, throughout the course of this discussion, we've become global citizens. Um, and I think that you know theme has has served us well. So you know my advice to my younger self is you know be a global citizen, read the Wall Street Journal, understand you know th these trends, ask a lot of questions, find mentors, and try to be a sponge um, and ask as many questions as possible about a real uh, about an asset class that I think is poised to create fascination throughout the course of your career. Wonderful, Ron, that's, uh, that's amazing advice and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for being interested in speaking with me. Really, really appreciate it. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.